0: Matthew, as Jesus is walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call not the righteous but the sinners. Well, as you can imagine, if you know me, um, I really love when these very unlike YouTube feed knows me, It sensations take place. And um, the way that my YouTube feed knows me, it sends me these all the time. Uh, and about a year ago, I was on the YouTubes and saw the heading, Lady Gaga and Metallica. And of course, I stopped, all, I stopped writing my sermon. I stopped answering your emails and went right to it. And by the way, it's amazing. It's Amazing, but I was thinking about all the different like collaborations that are just so strange and unlikely. I remember when like Willie Nelson did one with Snoop Dogg. Uh, there's the time that Jack White from the White Stripes went on tour with Loretta Lynn, and it wasn't even ironic; like it was legit. Like he loved Loretta Lynn, and I guess vice versa. Uh, so there was that one. Don't forget Prince and the Muppets. If anybody's old enough to remember that, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we got a few in the house that know that one. Uh, I was very skeptical as a deadhead when John Mayer joined the Grateful Dead, but I've seen them live, and like, it's so amazing. It's so amazing. Very few people can stand in Jerry's shoes, but he did it just just fine. But these unlikely collaborations have always interested me, but the, probably the best one, this is just me speaking, this is my opinion, uh, but it is correct, Um <laughs> It happened in March of 1986 when 70s rock and roll band Aerosmith got together with 1980s hip-hop genius of a band, Run DMC. Anybody? Yeah. Now, if you, thank you. If you don't know the story, Aerosmith was basically becoming a uh, has-been. They were just sort of n- fading. You know, is it better to burn out or to fade away? <laughs> they were fading away, maybe burning out as well. Run DMC was climbing as a hip-hop act. And the manager of Run DMC at the time, Rick Rubin, who also uh, produced the first Beastie Boys album and the first Black Crow's album. I have no idea how that happened. But um, Rick Rubin said, let's get these two together because his goal was to get hip-hop further out, a further reach of hip-hop. So he thought, well, if we can get together with a rock band, do a song, and Walk This Way already has kind of a hip-hop beat. And so they got these two bands together. The video is really cheesy and dumb. Um, it's all about sort of like breaking down walls and like they're yelling at each other for me. Have you seen the video? Okay, I'm not going to explain it because I can't. It's really dumb. But the song is like a classic uh, as far as a remake goes. But the collaboration was unbelievable and it really relaunched Aerosmith's career, but it also put Run DMC further on the geographical map of people who uh, liked them. And that is code for white people got interested in hip-hop. That's what happened there. Now, on one end, these collaborations, they open up new possibilities. They open up new uh, realities. All sorts of ideas are born out of these collaborations. On the other hand, these collaborations raise questions like, so why are Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg together, other than the marijuana? It raises that question. What are these two people, these two groups, these two singers doing together? And that question is at the very center of our story today. They ask Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So there's a sense that they understand Jesus to be an upstanding person. Then why? Is he sitting at a table with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the backdrop of this story is quite simple. You heard uh, Hannah read it to us uh, just a second ago, but Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, is called by Jesus to be his disciple. Now, these versions of uh, these disciples being called are always sort of humorous to me because Jesus just says, Follow me, and they do, but clearly we're missing something. Uh, But he, and the very first thing that we get after this call of Matthew is that Matthew throws a party and invites Jesus to his home, and Jesus is quite comfortable going. But I think even more interesting is that people seem to be quite, uh, they like Jesus. Jesus is a likable guy. And he's having this party with these tax collectors and sinners. Matthew always like couples that, tax collectors and sinners Like, tax collectors have their own category of sin. Like, there's sinners, and then there's, like, tax collector sinners, right? Now, tax collectors, you know this. Everybody loves them. Um, But in the Jewish circles of that day, tax collectors were somewhat, especially if they were Jewish, outsiders, so to speak, within those circles because of their collaborations with uh, Roman authorities, financial interests and so on. And meals were really uh, a display of welcome, of affirmation, of approval. And so the question they have for Jesus, or his disciples really, is fair. Okay, so Jesus is this kind of person, tax collectors and sinners. I kind of want to know who the sinners were that were there, uh, maybe feeling less than their tax collector friends. Wish I could sin like that. Um <laughs> But they ask, you know, Jesus is this kind of guy. Why is he with this kind of group at a table sharing a meal? Because a meal is a place of approval, a place of welcome, a place of friendship. And the sense in this story becomes one of tension between the outsider and the established. This is genuinely what's happening in the story. What are they doing here is the question. I love that the disciples don't answer, by the way. They're like, I don't know. Jesus himself answers instead. What are they doing here? Now, it is human nature for us to group according to acceptance, but also exclusion. If you think about your relationships and friendships and circles and the people that you, I quote, identify with, there's also an underbelly of exclusion in your group. Everybody in your group may have different affinities and friendships with various kinds of people, but everybody in your group tends to have an idea of who it is that doesn't like your kind of group. It's kind of like the lunchroom map in Mean Girls. Are you with me on this? Anybody? I was going to put the map up there. There's all the labels for the tables, but uh, it's a bit problematic on some of the language. So we went with the photo instead. It's a strict social code that we live by. And it was a strict social code even in those days as well. Nothing really changes. We haven't really evolved out of that. We group by acceptance. We also group by exclusion. And Jesus is pictured so many times throughout the Gospels as someone who sort of breaks through those norms and those social codes. He breaks through them, and he appears... um, very comfortable in each and every setting. There's a sense of a shared hospitality and welcome that's going on at this table. And the Pharisees ask, how is this happening? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think it was around 2006. I was not yet on staff here. I would be very soon, But I wasn't at the time. And the pastor at that time, whose name is Dan, who couldn't be here today, um, not because he doesn't like us, he's out of town. But I think it was around 2006, he left town for the weekend and invited me to come and guest for him as the preacher. And I did. And the text that we've just worked through just for a few minutes was the assigned text that he gave me. That's the one he gave me to preach. And I was thinking about what do I want to preach about on our 18th anniversary? We teach through the lectionary here, which uh, is a a set schedule of readings for each and every Sunday of the year, and there's always four options each week. And I looked through all four, and I was like, nothing is speaking to me. And I would like to do something with some connection uh, to our anniversary, but also to who we are as a church. And I thought back, what was the very first sermon I ever preached in this church? And it was this text, and I wasn't even on staff here at the time. And the prescribed direction that I was given for this text at that time was simply uh, about the hospitality and the welcome that Jesus had among people and the copying of that behavior as a parish. That's what Dan wanted me to talk about. Dan wanted to press on the idea of grace and mercy and hospitality uh, and to inspire this parish to practice that in real life. Now, some of you were here at that time, and you might remember this phrase, you might not, Uh, but behind the scenes of this teaching was a thing that they were getting ready to do as a church called Matthew parties. Does anybody have a recollection of this? And so, it wasn't just, hey, I want you to teach on this passage, but we're going to actually try and do this as a community, as people living in neighborhoods around real people. We wanted to do these uh, Matthew parties. Now, context, this was the theater days of the church. Now, some of you who were attending during the theater days may or may not know this, but the theater days were some of the hardest days on the church. When we look across the span of the 18 years, the theater days and the downtown days were two of the most difficult uh, time periods in the life of the church. It wasn't that the church was going to close, but it was real close. And We just kept trucking along, but these days were very, very difficult. And so when I met with Dan about this message, it was an attempt to do kind of a regrouping. What was happening was there was a sense of losing altitude and oxygen as the congregation, Uh, particularly the location of the theater was just very, eh, you know, it's not that inviting, it's gross. People were telling me stories about like, Yeah, the theater allowed us to put all of our kids' stuff behind the curtain under the screen, but what we didn't know was the way that they cleaned the theater was with a leave blower down underneath the curtain onto all the toys and things. And we know how churches can be sometimes, like that was a real quick, clean job every Sunday morning, like, okay, let's put the mats down, welcome your babies and toddlers. The mom is stuck to the floor trying to check in the kid. But the idea was, when we're struggling, and you do this in your company and your family, but also in the church, let's do a regroup. Let's circle back up and say, this is what matters. We have to go this direction. This is what we want to do. And this text was given to me as part of that conversation behind closed doors. Now, here's what I appreciated about it. What I appreciated was that in the depths of uncertainty... Uh, the plan was to simply double down on the behavior of love and welcome and grace and hospitality. That's what I appreciated. It wasn't necessarily an internal program idea to attract people, but it was a doubling down on the call to love people. I liked that. And I remember saying in the sermon... um, these words. I think it's okay if a church dies as long as it loved well. I think if a church breathes its last breath, I think that's okay. Because you know what? I, you can't go to a church today that the Apostle Paul started or anybody. Churches have a shelf life. You know, whatever church you've ever attended in your lifetime, this place is so amazing. It will one day close its doors. And I just feel like that's normal. That's okay. And I think it's okay for a church to die as long as it loved well. It's a different metric. The metrics in our American church system are expansion, legacy, exponential growth. How are we going to leave a mark and be influential in this city, you know? And I, I was into that too, I was sort of hired under this idea, this not pressure, but there was some pressure to come in and turn this place, this church, this congregation into something incredible. And I think in the back of my mind, I was like, it's already incredible. There's people here, they're surviving, we're in the city, it's great but there was some pressure, not by all people, but there was some pressure to um, lead a place that was making a name for itself. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying I wasn't interested. But I just had to get to a place where I had to tell myself and my leaders, I'm just not interested in that. I'm interested in something else. I never wanted this church or any church to feel like people came in and were involved to fulfill somebody else's leader vision board. That's not our goal for you. You're not here to fulfill my mission whatsoever. And so we hold that very loosely here. I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is this sort of story where Jesus pulls up chairs to a table, and there's just all these outsiders there. I'm interested in a, in a church where everybody has a seat at the table, amen, where if we're going to get criticized as a church, let's get criticized for the things Jesus was criticized for. When people look in and come in and notice who we are and the differences we may have about this or that, what they see is the very act of Christ unfolding in the community of the church the sense that Jesus is sitting comfortably at a table with these outsiders and making room for them in the family of God that's what i'm interested in that is what our leaders are interested in we want everybody to have a home church that's why we're here but there's so many churches and we want them to have the same effect on people that people come in and feel a part of what they're doing amen i think uh I was looking through a closing quotation and I do love this sentiment from um, biblical scholar Scott McKnight and he wrote a book on um, the church as a place of different kinds of people and he says this, the success of a church is first determined by how many invisible people become visible to those not like them. Because again, we group by affinity, we group by uh, affirmation, we group by the people that we see. And over time we can become blind to those around us, that people can become invisible. And I think if uh, we wanna be anything, it's at a place where the invisible becomes seen because community is so much more about being seen, about being made visible in the life of the church, and not remaining invisible. Amen? And that's what I wanted to say to you today on our 18th birthday. We've been through hell and back as a church. Uh, We've almost lost our shirts 50 times. I don't know. Uh, But we're still here, and we're still doing what God has called us to do, which is to keep scooting over and making room for people who need to be seen, who need to be known, and that's what we're here for. Thank you.